I'd like you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and I didn't ask them to do it ahead of time, but Aaron, would you mind reading this passage for me? I'm going to have you read 21 through, what's it say in the text there? 21 to 32. Thank you, sir. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the, Christ, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one who ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Thank you, sir. I want to encourage you to buckle up, because there is a lot of content in this message, and it all pieces together one layer on top of another. So I really need you to choose ahead of time to engage, think through, follow through the text, take notes. I've left a lot of room for you to take notes. And my hope and trust is always that you're going to jot down Especially when God gives you a aha, or God says, uh, hey, you need, you need to pay attention to that, or you need to walk that out, or you need to lean into this. Those are the kind of things you need to write down. And you know what? When God shows up that way, you may not hear another thing at the rest of the sermon. You just need to camp out there. But if you're not paying attention, I'm afraid you'll miss what God has for you. Sin destroys everything it touches, and it touches everything. But that isn't always the way it was. It wasn't what God intended in the beginning, but with the fall of man, sin entered the world, and with it, came death and destruction. And from that time until now, and until Christ returns, God has been about the business of reconciling man and all of his creation back to himself. We can see part of that plan, the plan of reconciliation, being played out in our text, specifically in the reconciliation of relationships which begins with these words found in Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. But I would argue that part of the plan, this reconciliation of relationships, and Jen had no idea what this, other than the text, but she prayed right out of this message. You cannot live this out without what precedes it in verse 18 and the filling of the Spirit, which we spent weeks unpacking. In order to get where we need to go, we need to go back to the beginning because in the beginning, we see what God intended relationships to be like. And we discover the impact of the fall and sin upon that plan. And I'm going to pray one more time. Father, my hope and prayer is that for some, maybe many in this room, that this word, that they would be encouraged and find freedom and they would be affirmed. I pray, Father, that there would be many aha moments among us this morning. None of that would be possible unless your spirit speaks to ours. So we make a choice now, Father, to even as Jen prayed, to submit to you. Speak to us. Have your way with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we read this. Then God said, let, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. And let them so rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the beginning, he created them male and female. And when he created them, he blessed them. Genesis 1.28, he said to them, notice the them, not just Adam, not just Eve. He said to them, I want you together, one flesh, to rule together, subdue, and multiply. All of which speaks to a co-ruling, a co-reigning on the earth with God. But then something happened. You know the story, right? Sin spoiled the party. Theologically, we call it the fall, and with the fall came separation, among other things. Separation between us and God, as well as between one another. And among the tragic results of the fall, as recorded in Genesis 3, was the loss of this co-reigning and co-ruling this one flesh dance, if you will, between one another and with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of that now lost, replaced by a striving for power and control. Who will be in charge? Who is going to be on top? Who is going to win and dominate? 
It says in Genesis 3.16, again, consequences of the fall. Genesis 3.16, to Eve, we read, your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Please understand, that is a result of the fall. Are you with me? Not a person. Smile, nod your heads, go, yep, pastor, that's what it says. All right. Now, the word desire sounds kind of warm and gooey, doesn't it? I mean, I desire you. That's not what the word means. The word actually speaks to a desire to tear down and usurp. Back to Genesis 3.16, he will rule over you, which is not speaking of a loving headship, it's dictatorial, domineering, crushing. That was never God's design or his desire or his dream in the beginning. All of that is a result of the fall. Can we agree on this? God is on mission. And He has called us to join Him in that mission. And the mission of God is the reconciliation and restoration of everything that was lost and everyone that was lost. That includes the restoration of the most basic and fundamental of all human relationships between a man and a woman. The fact is, that's exactly what Paul is calling us to, calling for in Ephesians 5, 21 and following when he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Which means no more striving, no more vying for power to see who's going to be in control, who's going to dominate, who's going to crush. Indeed, the call of the kingdom of God is to learn how to be subject to one another. That is, how do we stoop down, choose to serve one another? Being subject to someone, being subject to one, to someone literally means to take all the strength of who you are as a woman, to take all the strength of who you are as a man, and to come underneath someone else and lift them up so that they can become who God has called them to be. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, wives, I'm talking to you. And in verse 25, Paul says, husbands, I'm talking to you too. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then in verse 31, which is a quote from Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. By using that passage, Paul, I believe, is calling us at the beginning to remember something. To remember how it was. How did Adam look at and perceive Eve in the beginning, before the fall. 
question. Men, not just husbands, guys. Do people notice how you look at women? Husbands, do your wives notice how you look at women? Dads, do your kids notice? Do your daughters notice? Do your boys notice how you look at women? The answer is absolutely they do. In case you weren't sure, just want to help you out. Do your sons notice? Do your daughters notice? Yes. So, men, women, how can the effects of the fall be redeemed? To get to that answer, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 2.18 and ask, what was in God's mind when he created the first woman? When he created Eve, what was God thinking about? And to get a, we get a clue, actually, from Genesis 2.18 and how it's written, where God says, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a suitable, I will make a suitable helper to him. I will make a helper, a helper suitable to him. Now, a suitable helper. How does that phrase strike you, ladies? Does it sound negative to anyone? Is that phrase, is that something that you would use to define women? Suitable helper. If you read other translations, we don't get a lot more help. Um, You'll find helper, you'll find the phrase a helper fit for him, you'll find the word companion, you'll find the word partner, and this one, a help meet, M-E-E-T, King James. Now I think it's a good time to better understand what this word, what this phrase is about. The word used in Genesis 2.18 in Hebrew to describe woman is a compound word, hezar neged. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, who has studied Genesis for years and years, is a huge help in what's going on here. He said the word hezar is used only 20 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. In every other instance, you catch that? In every other instance, 19 out of 20 times, Hazar, Hazar refers to, I quote, the powerful help that comes from God alone to a people who are in desperate need. Let me say it again. The powerful help that comes from God alone to help people who are in desperate need. Perhaps a better translation of Hazer other than helper would be lifesaver. Lifesaver. 
Let me give you one example. Psalms 33, verse 20. Well, let me start in verse 16. Psalm 33, verse 16. No king is saved by the size of his army. No king is saved by warriors. No warriors escapes because they're strong. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Now, verse 20, we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our Hazar, our help, and our shield. Again, Hazar means the powerful help that comes from God alone to a people who are in desperate need. In short, lifesaver. You got that? That's the first part of this compound word. If you're with me, just wave. A few of you, thank you. Neged. Neged means alongside or face-to-face. It means counterpart. Alongside, face-to-face, counterpart. So together, Hazar Neged means, listen, a powerful lifesaver, a face-to-face companion. A powerful lifesaver, a face-to-face companion. With that, I think we start getting to a little bit closer definition of the women in this room. Amen, ladies. That's who God has created you to be. That is what you were created to be. Hazar Neged, a powerful help in a time of desperate need, a face-to-face, side-by-side companion. That's how it was in the beginning. With Adam and Eve, co-reigning, co-ruling, together, naked, unashamed, face-to-face companions, imaging God with all that is best about masculinity and all that is best about femininity together in the garden. But you know the story. Adam and Eve traded this beautiful life together for a lie. And at that moment, their way of knowing each other comes to a screeching halt. And every generation of them have piled up behind them like a nightmarish multi-car pileup on the interstate. Interesting to me that the first thing we notice after the fall is that is the impact of the relationship between the man and the woman has changed. After they go through the shaming and after they go through the blaming, Genesis 3.16, God tells them, He says first to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, Genesis 3.16, God, He's not changing His original design and saying, all right, here's my new version. No, no, no. He's simply describing the result of sin. God is explaining to males and females the tragic state of this car wreck, car wreck and what's resulted. See, 
Instead of co-reigning and co-ruling and face-to-face companionship and walking with God, instead of that happening, what will happen now is this vine for power of one person trying to dominate the other. That is a result of sin. Men, because of the fall, you will see women as objects to satisfy your own selfish gain. This is for every guy in the room, but I'm going to camp out on the young guys in the room. When you look at a girl walking down the hallway and you make some horrific comment to make your friends laugh, I wish I were there to call you out. How you talk about her, how you look at her, is a re- in that way is a result of the fall. And you're acting on not who you are in Christ. Can I get a big amen from the women? Wow, that was cheesy, ladies. Wow. <laughs> Trying to help you out. <laughs> Got to help out the brother. Because of the fall, guys, we'll look at women as objects to satisfy our own selfish gain. We'll be tempted to rule over them. We'll be tempted to dominate them. We will act dictatorial in power. And ladies, you're not off the hook. Because of the fall, you will do everything you can to get out from under that. And how that looks in an ungodly way is you will use manipulation and control to try and get back on top. And we have this wonderful relationship. All of that is a result of the fall. It's not the way God intended it in the beginning. So men, women, let me ask again, how can the effects of the fall be redeemed? Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is a beautiful and subversive antidote to the curse. Paul is saying to the church, how you look at women, how you treat women, how you look at men, how you treat men, specifically in a Christian marriage, be different than the culture you live in. Submit to one another. And that is absolutely countercultural. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I believe that picture, these words are the way back to what God intended in the beginning. There's just one problem, and Jen prayed it. Nobody likes to submit. Everybody likes to be submitted to, but nobody likes to submit. 
And Paul's radical proposal that we read in Ephesians 5.21 is this, that Christians all across the world, husbands, wives, sons and daughters, co-workers, friends, students, teachers, that we would learn what it meant to submit to one another. Not just learn it, but to walk it out. The word that Paul uses here for submit, and this is extremely important, is the compound word hupotasso. Hupo means underneath, and tasso means to place in order. Literally, it means to place oneself underneath. To place oneself underneath. The verb tense that carries it is in the middle voice in the Greek. Now that probably sounds weird because in the English we don't have the middle voice. We have the active voice like I teach you. And we have a passive voice like you are taught by me. But the middle voice, listen, happens voluntarily. That is, you do it to yourself. Like when you teach yourself how to play guitar. So Ephesians 1, excuse me, Ephesians 5.21 and Ephesians 5.22 are not a command by Paul because it carries with it the implication that it would be voluntary. And you can't command somebody to do something voluntarily. This is what makes this word beautiful, to voluntarily place yourself underneath someone else in order to lift them up. This is a beautiful picture of submission. Hupotasso, to voluntarily come underneath in order to lift someone else up at personal cost to you. It's why Paul encourages wives. He asks wives, he implores wives to submit to their husbands. But what he's calling them to is to something that only, listen, only a woman of tremendous strength can do this. Especially in that culture, but it's just as true in ours. To actually, listen, to actually desire that your husband would be lifted up to become all that God intended him to be, so much so that you would choose to voluntarily come under him and support him and help him to reach whatever it is God's made him to be, not in a pecking order kind of way, but for the purpose of helping him reach what God has called him to do and be, and that he would find his needs met in his relationship with God. There's another piece that we need to see, and it's necessary for this reconciliation of this relationship to take place. Look at Ephesians 5, 23 and 24 with me. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Verse 24, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. John Bristow, in his book, What Paul Really Said About Women, writes, I quote, the English word head is very obvious. It means two things 
all at once. It literally means the head of the body, right here. But it's also figuratively used to mean the head of a corporation or a body of people. So there are people who are the head of a company, and we know what that means. There are people that are head of a volunteer organization. We know what that means, that they lead it, right? But in the Greek, there are two unique words that are both translated into the English, head. One word is arche, which means head in terms of leadership, but, it, but also in terms of what is first in importance and power. From this Greek word, we get our English words like archenemy and archbishop, both of which are examples of the idea of first in order of importance. The word is also used to describe the oldest and therefore most important. We get our words like archives and archaeology, which refer to the first things or the older things, the important things. So it's really interesting. Catch this. Paul didn't use that word. He didn't use archaic. In Ephesians 5.23, had he, he could have accomplished two things at once. Had he used archaic, he could have said, men, you're the leaders. And because you should be the leaders, because you were the first created, you are the archetype of humanity. If he wanted to make that point, he could have easily done so. But Paul chooses to use the other word for head, which is the word kaphale. It does mean the literal head, like right here, head of a body. But it is never, listen, it's never used to describe the figurative head like the CEO, the leader, the boss. It refers to that which is at the extremity. The end of a pole is the kafale. The tip of the spear is the kafale. The nose of an aircraft is kafale. It's also used as a military term, catch this, denoting that which is the first into battle. It's what receives the first impact in the case of conflict. Now listen, the challenge to be kafale is much more difficult than the challenge to be arche. A husband who is living out kafale in the relationship with his wife is willing to be the first into battle, not against her, but for her. Did you catch that, guys? The first in the battle for your wife. Therefore, a true kafale, a husband who is the head, says to his wife, you are worth dying for. You are worth laying my life down for. 
Now, husbands, after church today, if you dared to ask your wife this question, choosing already to not be defensive or argumentative, if you ask your wife, do you feel like I think, do, do you, does it, do I treat you like, do I act like, in our relationship, would you say that I act and live like you're worth dying for? If you asked your wife that question, do you feel you might need to brace yourself for the response? Ephesians 5.25 expresses this very dynamic. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He laid down his life. He was the first one into the conflict. Word for love used here, you can guess, agape, meaning A giving love that expects nothing in return, no conditions, laying one's life down, giving oneself in order to lift the other person up. In fact, it is virtually identical to hupotasso, to place yourself underneath someone else. So, when Paul says, husbands love your wives, And when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he is telling them, this is how you submit one to another. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Paul uses basically synonyms here to, to express submission. And Paul is asking husbands, just like he's asking wives, to voluntarily come underneath your wife in order to lift her up so that she can be the woman that God has created her to be. So we get this beautiful and difficult picture of mutual submission between a husband and wife, relationship redeemed. And because I'm a visual learner, let me give you this. In the beginning, it was like this. This is the way it was. This is the way God intended. After the fall, it became like this. But when we submit one to another, it's a, honey, I'm going to do whatever I can in all my strength, in the strength of God, that you would become the woman that God desired you. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm coming with you. You're going to be all of the man that God desired you. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to outdo. No, no. I'm going to come underneath you. No, no, no. I'm going to come up. And that is relationships redeemed. Man, I want to give you something to think about based on how you treat your wife, on how you relate to her as a kafale and not an arche. Would your wife say to her friends, my husband, he thinks I'm worth dying for. I think that would be the most beautiful statement that my wife could say to her friends. Women, how about for your husbands? 
to say the same thing about you. To be with his friends and your husband to say, my wife is so strong and loves me so well, she is worth dying for. Application. Here's what I know is true. And again, Jen prayed it. She had no idea what this message is. She's not even in here. She's doing children's church. This is just the Spirit of God. You hear it once. You hear it twice. Pay attention. In my own strength, in my flesh, I run out of the desire to crank it out and to continually come under my wife and wanting to lift her up. That's true in all my relationships. To come alongside, to come underneath one of my friends or, or some of a family member and lift them up. That submission to God to love them and, and to come under them and, so that they can become what God has desired them to be. I run out of that desire trying to do it on my own. But when I learn in my relationship with Christ, when I learn and enter into more and more to submit to the love of God that God has for me, a love that, think about it, He placed Himself under me to lift me up, literally to raise me from the dead for this life on earth and when I see Him face to face. When I begin to wrap my head around in that even a little bit, it begins to help me to make the choice to go toward that person. But here's the other thing. It is impossible to do it in your own strength, but it is possible. It's possible to do this when I'm walking moment by moment, day by day, in the fullness of the Spirit, when I am daily asking for Him to fill me and empower me and flow through me, brought about by His power, borne along by His power, permeated by His person, controlled by His presence. When I walk a life of repentance, as in when I have treated my wife in an improper way, I recognize what it is and say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. That's not who you made me to be. That's not who you called me to be. Live through me to help me to come underneath her and live the way you've called me to live. To lift her up because, God, you've made her a wonderful creation. I do not want to be the one who squashes her and holds her down. And ladies, when you find yourself teetering that, and you've, you've gone into some pattern where you've tried to push them down or be disrespectful, whatever it ends up looking like, then you're not such a good moment to recognize it and to turn away from it. Receive God's forgiveness that He's already given to you. Lord, I'm sorry. That's not going to, to recognize. You know, I'm sorry that I treated you that way. But Lord, I'm coming back here. I'm going to come under you because it's only by your power and your spirit and your spirit's empowering that you're going to enable me to come under my husband, under my wife, and enable them to be who they've called you've called them to be. That's how God reconciles the relationship 
that he intended from the beginning. Take out the command to be filled from the Spirit and you are on your own. And look at what has happened to our culture. Even in the church, it looks no different than our culture. So I implore you. That's why I spent four weeks on the filling of the Spirit. If we don't walk in daily His strength and His power, you are on your own. You can call it a Christian marriage, but it's nothing more than striving in the flesh. God has so much more, something so much better than perhaps what you're experiencing right now. Two questions. Think about, the first question is this, what is stopping you from pursuing this kind of relationship with another person? What is stopping you from pursuing this kind of relationship? What's stopping you? And the second question is, are you willing to start the journey? What's stopping you? Are you willing to start? Stand with me. Guys, ladies, do not let the enemy take a word like this and beat you up. There's a conversation to be had between you and the Lord or you and your spouse, significant other. It's, I can't live that way. That's what brokenness is. Coming to the end of yourself and say, I can't do that. But Lord, I'm going to trust in your filling and empowering for today to live the way you've called me to live in relationships. I'm going to ask you again tomorrow, and I'm going to ask you 20 minutes from now again. I need you to do a miracle in me, change me, transform me from the inside out. So if there's any things stirring in you, let it be that, not a condemnation. Father, I pray that for me, for the guys in this room, for the ladies in this room, I pray that you would use us to come under those that you have placed in our lives, and you would use us as we submit to one another to lift them up, to become the people that you have designed them to be. Lord, that we would even desire to, I need you to churn that up in me, even lean into that, I need you to remind me day by day, moment by moment, to do it in your strength and your filling and empowering and not my own. Send us out in your strength, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.